From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Shana Swan. She's a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. For over 20 years, Dr. Swan has been studying the impact of environmental chemicals on neuro and sexual development. She's gathered her findings in a new book called Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. As the title suggests, this is scary stuff, but it's too important to ignore, and there's no wishing it away. Plus, as Dr. Swan explains, there are steps we can take to protect ourselves and our children from harmful endocrine-disrupting chemicals like BPA and phthalates. The future may literally depend on it. Dr. Swan, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. And please do call me Shauna. That's fine. Will do. So we are in a global fertility crisis, just something that I didn't realize before I read your book. Uh, worldwide fertility, the ability to conceive children, has dropped more than 50% over the past 50 years, or at a rate of about 1% per year. And this affects both men and women. On the male side, men today have only half the number of sperm that their grandfathers had. And on the female side, in some parts of the world, a woman in her 20s is less fertile than her grandmother was at 35. You write in the book, the current state of reproductive affairs can't continue much longer without threatening human survival. Without getting into the causes just yet, paint us a picture of the fertility crisis as you see it. Well, overall, what we're seeing is that by any measure, male, female, we see a decline at about the same rate. So sperm counts have been declining at about 1% per year or even faster. Miscarriage rates have gone up at 1% per year. We have increases in women of diminished ovarian reserve. We have increases in men of problems with testosterone leading to the need for testosterone replacement, erectile dysfunction. All of these problems have been getting worse and by the way, also testicular cancer going up at about 1% per year in Western countries, um, genital birth defects in males also. So it's really an alarming picture when you put it all together, and it's not slowing down. I can't believe I'm saying this, but in its totality, this body of evidence that you and, and colleagues around the world have accumulated, this means, and this is no exaggeration, that the future of our species to reproduce period, is actually at risk. That's correct. And the U.S. Um, wildlife, Fish and Game, uh, I forget what their technical name is, but they have criteria for an endangered species, and we go through that in Countdown, and we meet the criteria for an endangered species. It's one of the many, many places in this book where you just kind of like have to put it down for a second and shake your head before picking it back up. It's really startling. So... Jonathan, this is Western countries, okay? And I have to stress that because while we try to look over the whole world and search the databases for every English language publication, there was very little data from non-Western countries. So we really can't draw a conclusion about those, although we hope to in future studies. For example, an update we're doing right now. But um, if you look at fertility which is the number of children that a woman or a couple has, it's called birth rate or fertility rate. And you look at that over the whole world, 
and that's not my study, that's World Bank data, you see that that has declined from 1960, from five children per woman or couple, to 2.4, 2.4. So the same kind of 50% decrease in about 50 years, about 1% per year, which is the rate that sperm count has been declining. 2.1 being replacement. That's sort of the, the threshold. That's correct. 2.1, a couple replaces themselves. Two people, a little bit extra. So worldwide, we may still be, we don't have the latest data. We may be just at or slightly above replacement, but most Western countries are below replacement. And in some countries like Singapore and Korea, it's down to 1.0. And what's really scary is those countries are very concerned. And so they're trying to increase this rate. And they're actually giving monetary incentives. For example, housing, paid housing for couples that have a child in Singapore. It doesn't work. They can't get this up again. And this is what demographers predict, that when it goes down below two, it will not go back up. Who knows? That's a prediction. We'll see. But for now, it looks very scary. You argue in the book that a group of man-made chemicals called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, are largely to blame. What are EDCs and how are they used in commercial products? So endocrine-disrupting chemicals or hormone disruptors are chemicals that have the ability to interfere in some way with our body's endogenous hormones, right? And um, the ones that I'm particularly concerned about are those that can affect estrogen and testosterone because those are so critical for reproduction, and that's what I study. How did these chemicals get into our environment in the first place? What are they doing in our products? A lot of these chemicals are extremely valuable for us, enabling us to live the kinds of modern lives that we expect and want. And one key function is that they change the nature of plastic. Phthalates in particular make plastic soft and flexible, squishy. Think rubber duckies or shower curtains, right? And then on the other side um, are the bisphenols, which have the property to make plastic hard. So they're kind of twins, if you will. Uh, so the bisphenols uh, are your BPAs. That's maybe a term people are familiar with. They've heard BPA-free this, BPA-free that. BPF more recently or BPS. You can add various letters of the alphabet to that uh, after the B, and they are different kinds of bisphenols. And they um, have the property to make plastic hard, and they also are in linings of tin cans. They're also surprisingly in cash register receipts and pizza boxes, so paper products. Um, And um, yeah, so phthalates, they do make plastic soft and flexible, but they do a lot of other things. For example, they increase absorption of a product, uh, like a personal care product, or a pesticide. They increase absorption. So for a pesticide, it helps the pesticide go up into the plant. For a personal care product, it helps, or cosmetic, it helps it go into the skin, which we want for the use of our cosmetics and our hand cream, but we don't want so much for our health. What's the connection between the phthalates or the bisphenols and sex hormones? Do they mimic the hormones? How do they interfere with these systems? 
Yeah. So phthalates, certainly three of them that have been well studied and, and particularly ones we found to be problematic, lower testosterone. The bisphenols are pro-estrogenic, so they increase estrogen. But what they do when they lower testosterone depends upon the age at which the exposure occurs. Got it. So uh, what I'd like to do is talk specifically about prenatal exposure. That's something you focus on in the book a lot. Right. What I study is pregnant women and what they're exposed to and how it affects the development of their offspring. So, of course, I'm focused on fetal life. Okay. So early in fetal life, the genital tract is the same in males and females. And you can't tell by looking at it whether the child is a genetic male or a genetic female. Okay. And then early in pregnancy, and we're not sure exactly when, but we know it's early in the first trimester, testosterone starts to be produced. And the presence of testosterone produced by the fetal testes starts the differentiation of the genital tract. So at that point, it starts to differ between what will become a boy and what will become a girl, right? Depending on the genetic makeup of the the organism. So if testosterone is present, then this fetus will develop testicles. If not, it will develop ovaries and so on for the other organs. Let me pause you for a second to make sure I understand before we get into this bit. So what you're saying so far is that there's a a window when a fetus is developing in which sex differentiation takes place. And it's at that window in particular that the presence or lack of testosterone can make a huge difference into how the fetus develops sexually. Correct. Okay. So one of the most critical things that happens is the development of something which most people don't know about at all, but which I know about a lot because I used it for the study of phthalates. And I was the first person to do that, to use it for human toxicity. Okay. The distance from the anus to the genitals is called the anogenital distance. And by the way, there are street terms for this that people might know, such as taint or gooch or grundle. And what's really interesting about AGD is that it is 50 to 100% longer in genetic males than genetic females. And it increases under the influence of testosterone, right? And so it turns out that under the influence of phthalates, this distance in a genetic male is not as long as it would be if the mother had been exposed to less phthalates. Now, that was that's sort of the bottom line, but let me go back to when this was first asked. It was first asked in around late 1990s, and in 2000, uh, toxicologists in the National Toxicology Program published a paper saying, we have seen and replicated the phthalate syndrome. They named it the phthalate syndrome. And part of the syndrome, and a major part of it, was that in phthalate-exposed rodents, this distance was short, shorter than expected for their size, okay? And they also showed that the penis was smaller, that the scrotum was smaller, that the testicles were less likely to be descended, and they also showed some internal problems that actually we couldn't follow up on because they're internal. But I asked 
does this exist in humans? And we developed an exam to measure this in human infants. And then we did the study. And what did you find? We found the phthalate syndrome in humans. And then we did another study. And that was a study in which I enrolled college students. And they volunteered for $75 to let us measure their AGD. And they gave us a semen sample. And what we found was, as you might think, or as we hypothesized, that the shorter AGD was significantly associated with lower sperm count. It was linear. Just the bigger the AGD, the higher the sperm count. So what you're saying is that exposure to phthalates in the womb has lifelong implications for fertility. That's correct. That's correct. That's pretty scary. And it probably has, and this, we have... Um, less evidence of, but we know that, for example, worldwide testosterone has been decreasing at the same rate as sperm count and fertility have been decreasing, 1% per year. Although it's not as well studied, of course, as sperm count. And since testosterone is lowered by phthalates, it's likely that that lowering in the womb has lifelong consequences for the men's testosterone. I have a whole section in my interview notes that's called WTF. What? what the- it's called... <laughs> <laughs> but before we launch into WTF, because there's a lot of WTF, I want to ask one question that I know is very sensitive. Um, could EDC exposure influence gender identity and sexual preference? And how do we explore or even talk about this without further stigmatizing LGBTQ folks? Yeah, John, that's a... Hard one and a difficult one and sensitive one, as you said. So what I like to do is break it into three parts. So we have disorders of sexual development. That is just physiological. Uh, For example, frogs with ovaries and testes in the same animal. That can be caused by EDCs. And it's been caused in the laboratory. No question about that. So children with disorders of sexual development are possibly experiencing this because of exposures to their parents at the time of conception or during pregnancy. Okay, that's a relatively easy one. The next sort of complicated level is the question of um, homosexuality and partner preference, right? And this can be altered also in the laboratory and in the wild, in other species by endocrine disrupting chemicals. The pesticide atrazine, for example, changing the preference of frogs and other chemicals, estrogens, changing the preference of fish and so on. Those are arguably, in some people at least, maybe related to partner preference. Although undoubtedly there's a genetic component as well, but there may be gene environment interaction. Now, the hardest question is gender choice, preference, First of all, I want to say, because people ask me this all the time, they say, well, this big increase in, you know, kids who want to transition, is that due to environmental chemicals? And I just say, I don't know that there has been a big increase because, of course, you know, 40 years ago, nobody would have talked about this. It wasn't recognized. It wasn't something you could report on or count. And 
you know, so if you're going to look at an increase, you have to be able to count. And we don't have those numbers. So certainly there's more awareness of it now. There's no uh, easier, you know, it's easier to talk about. Um, there appears to be an increase, but whether there has been an increase, I don't think we know. And I, we may not know because those numbers haven't been recorded. Maybe we have to go from, you know, 2000 on and, and look at any trends that accrue. But as far as causes, I'm up against a wall here as well, because you know from my talking to you that I rely very heavily on animal studies. I rely on animal studies to suggest a hypothesis, to suggest a mechanism, right? And I use those models to build human studies. If you look at animals, you cannot ask them what is their preference, their gender preference. You have no, because we can't obviously communicate and they don't have uh, that concept of self. At least we don't think they do, but that's another question for neuroscience, right? But, um, but honestly, I would have to say we don't know. Do you rank this up with thalidomide, asbestos, cigarette smoking? Is it on that level of urgency? I think it's higher than that. I think it's on a higher level because it's much broader those were specific exposures, very bad for a certain class of workers, also bad for people who had these things in their home, but that was, wasn't everywhere. But this is everywhere. This is global. This is not just humans. It's other species, which we see all the time are endangered or going extinct. And I think this is a much larger problem than any one of those chemicals. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. Well, I think it's time for WTF. <laughs> <laughs> how is this, how, how is this even possible? Like, doesn't the government protect us against EDCs? It doesn't protect us, and it could. It could do better. And I just want to point to what happened in the EU. Well, say what, what happens here so that we can compare the two. Okay, yeah. Okay, so what happens in the U.S. is that there is no requirement that a chemical be proven safe before it's put into commerce. It's put out there. It goes into products, and the way it's tested is on us. We are the guinea pigs, and it takes somebody like me and my fellow scientists to recognize there might be a problem, to do a study that takes five to 10 years and costs five to $10 million to identify the risk associated with a single or maybe multiple chemicals in a class and a single outcome or system outcome, Right. So very long, very hard, very difficult. And by the way, once we do that, they often remove the chemical we've identified as harmful and replace it with another one with a slightly different name, um, which causes the same harm. We call that regrettable substitution. It's been done with BPA being replaced with BPS and BPF. It's been done with phthalates. So it's a terrible roller coaster ride that we're on. It's whack-a-mole. You're playing whack-a-mole. It's whack-a-mole. It's whack-a-mole. And they can do that because a chemical is not required to be tested before it's put into market. 
But under REACH, which is in Europe, they actually are required to do, the manufacturer is required to test before it's put into market. So the consequence is pretty big. Um, if you look at the number of chemicals that are not allowed in cosmetics in our country, there's 11. And in Europe, in the EU, there's 1,100. So it's a quite a different scene. That's not to say that the EU is, you know, home free or that everything has been removed or anything like that. There's a lot, lot more work to be done, but at least that's on the right track. Clearly, this is something that needs to be handled on a government or intergovernmental level for the listener who is by now freaked out beyond freaked out. What are some things that they can do to reduce their exposure? There are many things we can do to reduce our exposure if we're pregnant, if we're planning a pregnancy, it's the most important time to do that. I would suggest, of course, that people read Countdown, my book, because we go in for several chapters in detail, lots of detail about things people can do. But here are some things I could say quickly. I would say, start with your kitchen and to the extent possible, try to replace plastics with glass and ceramic. And I guess the number one thing I would say is do not microwave in plastic. Because what happens is that the phthalates and the phenols are not chemically bound to the plastic. That means they leave easily and they leave most quickly in the presence of heat. So when the plastic is warmed, they come out of the plastic, they go into the material, whether it's food, whether it's milk, whether it's uh, anything in a plastic container, and then we absorb them very easily. And we absorb them through ingestion, through dermal absorption, through inhalation. Um, we get them through the air, we get them through the dust. And this is true not just about phthalates, it's also the phenols, it's also the flame retardants, it's also the perfluorinated compounds that are in our frying pans and so on and so forth. So there's so many, we can't do this all in this interview, but there's obviously a huge problem that we have to address. And I think the first step is to say, let me think about what I'm bringing into my house. Let me think about what's in the food I'm feeding my baby or my family. You know, let me be aware of what I'm putting on my body. And, and that awareness is the first step. Just say, ah, this could be a problem. Let's not use this product. Or you can go online. There are many websites, and we go through resources and countdown, but a simple one is Environmental Working Group. You can put in the name of a product, and it can tell you its safety rating, if you will. So I think just stop you know, closing our eyes to the problem, recognizing the problem, and we can do a lot. You can definitely go crazy with this stuff, right? You can become extremely obsessive about banishing every plastic, every right. and because we, there's so much we still don't know. So how can how can somebody kind of take this on without losing themselves to the panic? Right, um, panic doesn't help. Actually, panic is bad for your reproductive health. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want we don't want to panic, right? Um, but I think just like. You know, we've learned to shop better. Um, we've learned to, you know, just kind of add it to the list of things you want to do besides comparing how well something works, you know, how expensive it is, uh, what kind of reviews it gets. Look at what's in it if you can. 
Uh, if you don't know, you can look that up online. And as I say, you can look in our book. But um, I would just make this one of the things that people consider when they bring things into their lives. I know that there are, there are certain EDCs that are persistent, right? They're going to stay yeah. in the environment for a long, long time. Yeah. But phthalates and, and other EDCs, if I'm not mistaken, there are some that are water-soluble, which means that if you reduce your exposure— you can make yeah. a difference in your body and your health. It's not like it's not like you're a lost cause. I think that's good for people to know that they think, oh, well, shoot, it's not I'm not ruined because I didn't know about this earlier. No, it's it's not too late to make right. a difference for yourself, right. for your health and the health of your family. Yeah. So unlike the persistent chemicals, the legacy chemicals which stuck around forever in fat and in our bodies and in the environment, the good thing is the phthalates and the bisphenols and other modern chemicals. Um, are going in and out very quickly. So they're non-persistent, they're water-soluble, we take them in and we excrete them with a half-life of four to six hours, many of them, and then they're gone. The bad news is that they keep coming back. So they're forever chemicals, but if we change our habits, then they're gone. And do you have any thoughts on how to become active in truly creating meaningful legislation or regulations or anything, because again, this needs to be on a larger level. The personal level is not effective enough. Yeah. I honestly can't pick out my favorite environmental group for people to join. If you're interested in doing this, you could maybe talk to some people at Mount Sinai in the community engagement group in our department, um, environmental medicine and public health. Um, there are wonderful people there that can lead you to specific resources in the community that could help. I think the more communities get involved, the better. And we would love to bring in all kinds, a diverse set of voices in, to address this problem. Because we haven't talked about equity, environmental equity here, but these are problems that actually impact underserved communities more than wealthier communities. Um, the exposures are higher. And we're showing in one of our studies just being published that the impact of these chemicals are greater on underserved communities. So it's a double whammy. Right. And there's a huge privilege associated with buying organic, taking these other steps to reduce your exposure. These are not accessible to everybody. Exactly. Exactly. A question I like to ask my guests, and I think we're going to close on this one, um, is what's the biggest sort of unanswered question that you are looking at, thinking about, hoping to get clarity on in the next few years? I think the biggest question is how to bring about the kind of regulatory change that's necessary to fix this. That has a lot of <laughs> ramifications, of course. You know, how do you get people engaged so they put on pressure to government to make these changes. And you also have to have alternatives in the manufacturing sphere and in the chemical manufacturing sphere so that they can say, well, don't use this, use this. Right now, we don't have a lot of good alternatives for plastics. Um, and so I think that we need to lean on the system, if you will, to, to say we demand safer products. That means the chemical manufacturers have to bake the chemicals, the plastics manufacturers have to use them, and the government has to regulate them. In other words, we have the science. We know what we need to know to make change. 
We have. We just need to make change. We know enough to demand change. Thank you, Dr. Swan. Thanks so much, and thanks for doing all this. This is wonderful. Dr. Shauna Swan is a professor of environmental medicine and public health here at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Her book is called Countdown. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. If you liked it, please head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. We've also got a listener survey going. We'd love to hear from you as always, and we're always looking for guest suggestions. So follow the link in the show notes for that. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by Nikki Cheatham, me, John Earl, and our executive producer, Lucille Lee. From all of us here, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.